You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Weber, and joining Walker & Dunlop CEO, Willie Walker, today are Kara McShane and Christy Furcho from Wells Fargo. Before we kick off this insightful discussion, I would like to read a brief disclaimer. Any views or opinions expressed, including any market price, market data, indicative value, or estimate, is indicative and subject to change without notice, and Wells Fargo accepts no liability for its use or to update or keep it current. And any views or opinions are those of the individual speakers, not necessarily of Wells Fargo. Past performance is not necessarily a guide to future performance. Wells Fargo and company may provide views or opinions that differ from those expressed in this communication and also may from time to time acquire, hold, or sell a position in the securities or financial products mentioned herein. Expressions of opinion are subject to change without notice and is not intended as investment advice. Thank you for joining us today. And now over to Willie. Thank you, Susan. I feel sort of like I'm starting an earnings call here, ladies. I, uh, I, I, I like the Wells Fargo disclaimer. It's great. That was quite a disclaimer. When we Whenever were, when I we, hear that, it's like, we will disavow ever knowing you. you know? Exactly. <laughs> I feel like that should be the punchline. <laughs> when, when we were a young public company, we used to have these pages and pages of disclaimers at the beginning of our earnings calls. And I kept asking our general counsel, can't we winnow that down a little bit so we can kind of get to the real stuff? And he was like, we got to do it. So. So Karen, Christy, it's just a true joy to have the two of you. I will introduce you both in a second. But as I think about the real estate landscape, the mortgage landscape, both of you in your own right are such incredibly influential executives in the mortgage finance world. To have both of you under the same roof clearly says that Wells Fargo is got the most powerful female executive team in mortgage finance period, end of statement. And I would also say that it's really hats off to Wells Fargo for having recruited and promoted two women of your capabilities into the roles that you have today. And we'll get into a lot of that later on in the call, but it's just at the top of it. This was a dream webcast for me to put together. I started talking about this with Kara back in, I don't know, June or July, and then I looped Christy in and to get it on both of your schedules was a tad challenging, which I knew it would be, but I just want to say to get this in in 2021 is a, is a real joy on my part. Let me do quick bios on the two of you, and then we'll dive into the conversation that I know lots of people want to hear us have. Kara McShane is an executive vice president and head of commercial real estate at Wells Fargo. Kara joined Wells Fargo in 2010 and has held various senior roles within CRA and asset-backed financing, including head of structured real estate, head of commercial real estate capital markets, and finance. Prior to joining Wells Fargo, McShane spent seven years at Morgan Stanley, where she was managing director and head of securitized products group capital markets, as well as co-head of commercial real estate capital markets and trading. Kara serves on the board of directors of the Real Estate Roundtable, the board of Breaking Ground, and several other industry boards. Kara received her AB in economics from Duke University and her MBA in finance and management from Columbia University. 
Christy Faircho is Executive Vice President and Head of Wells Fargo Home Lending. Christy has 18 years of experience in the mortgage industry, most recently serving as President of the Mortgage Division at Flagstar Bank. Before Flagstar, Christy held the strategy and business performance of single-family customers at Fannie Mae for 15 years. Faircho has also held sales, operation, and human resources roles at Baxter International before moving to PepsiCo, where she was Director of Worldwide Corporate Human Resources. Currently, Christy serves as chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association and a member of its residential board of governors. She also leads the Affordable Housing Working Group for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency Project REACH Initiative and serves on the boards of the National Urban League, Open Doors Foundation, City Year, and the Detroit Zoological Society. I want to talk about animals before we get done with all this stuff and, and the Detroit Zoo. But first of all, thank you both. And, and I want to start, last week I had Ed Walter, the CEO of the Urban Land Institute on. And during that, we discussed ULI's Emerging Trends Report, which painted a pretty bullish, very bullish picture for commercial real estate in 2022. Kara, let me start with you. As the largest lender on commercial real estate in the United States, what's yours and Wells Fargo's outlook for commercial real estate in 2022 and beyond? Hey, that's a good one to start with, Willie. So first of all, thank you so much for having both Christy and I today. We are delighted to be here, and I am delighted to share the screen with her. So this is really fantastic. I have to say that I agree with Ed, unfortunately. If you were looking for controversy, you're not going to get it here. I am fairly bullish for 2022 for a whole host of reasons. I would say, you know, that's assuming there's no material, negative, economic reversal. We've got global low rates, which even if they go up, I think they're going to stay low on a relative basis. I think CRE is offering good relative value to other sectors. We've got an abundance of liquidity in both debt and equity across the capital stack. We've got unprecedented record levels of dry powder and all of that is going to continue to fuel investment in commercial real estate, and it's, it's going to drive flows into the sector. In 2021, we've seen tremendous activity, M&A activity, lots of publics to privates, and we expect to continue to see that trend in 2022. And that drives a lot of need for capital, both secured and unsecured capital. So I just don't see this slowing down anytime soon based on the conversations that I have with industry participants and, and certainly from, you know, the activity that I see in our pipeline. As you think, Kara, for a moment about the, the big taper or the transient inflation numbers and everyone trying to read the tea leaves on, the, on, the, on what's going to happen today and what the Fed says and where we go from here, you made the comment that rates may move, but relatively speaking, they're still very low from any historic standpoint. And I kind of look at a Dow at 35,000 and a 10 year at 144, 142. I think it actually rallied a little bit today ahead of the meeting. If you'd asked me that a year ago, I would have been like, man, oh man, that's an incredible end to 2021. Are you, is that a, is kind of, is that your same feeling about where we sit today? I think everybody has been surprised at the economic recovery that we've experienced this year. I don't think the economy is overheated though. So, you know, I, I am worried about inflation like everyone else is. I think 
this is interesting timing to have this, this webcast right before the Fed meeting. So I'm not sure anyone's going to be paying attention or if they're just going to be looking for the announcement. That's why we tape it and play it later. So people can, <laughs> oh, good. they're all waiting to hear what <laughs> right the Fed chairman says. They all come on and watch us later. So it's all good. Great. I, I thought we were live. I didn't know. We, that. Are, so, we are live and okay. there's plenty <laughs> listening live, but you know, a lot of people come in when it doesn't sit in the middle of their day. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but to, to your point, inflation inflation d- doesn't seem transitory at this point. I think it will remain elevated at, at, at levels probably above where the Fed prefers it to be for some time, and they and they likely will raise rates next year. And as long as it's not unexpectedly quick or the magnitude is not unexpected, I think commercial real estate will be fine. And frankly. Commercial real estate has performed really well historically in inflationary environments. So there's some built-in protection there that, you know, while I'm not saying that there aren't uncertainties for the economy and, and you know, we can talk about energy prices and wage inflation and all sorts of things, but I still feel bullish about CRE and, and feel like we've got some built-in protection with some of the risks that are outstanding. So Christy, let me, let me come to you because as, Kara looks forward and says, you know, commercial real estate, higher inflation, rates low, a lot of large deals, really very positive macro environment for CRE and CRE lending. Not so much on the single family side. Why don't you, what's your thoughts as it relates to, I just saw today, MBA came out and year on year mortgage applications are down 10% over this time last year. So we're seeing that, you know, everyone went and kind of redid their single family mortgage, but then you also have a very robust purchase mortgage market. So how are you viewing the outlook for 2022 from a single family standpoint? Yeah, it's actually very similar to what you were saying. I mean, you know, we all know that the housing market is cyclical and it's been really striking to me and especially coming out of this pandemic, going back to, you know, kind of 2020 when this all started in March, uh, it's been really striking to me to see the market dynamics be what they've been over the last couple of years being as steady as they have been against this backdrop of, you know, this broader economic volatility. And so, you know, as we think about what the forecast is, and again, the last two years have been the highest origination years on recorded history, right? And if you would have told me it's same thing, like, you know, looking at what 2020 was when we all went into lockdown in COVID, that in 2020, we would have had the highest origination year, and then we would follow it up in 2021, I mean, we may exceed $4.8 trillion of originations in 2021. If you would have told me 2021 would be even stronger than 2020, I would have lost that bet. And so I think it has been an extraordinarily strong market. And, you know, we are certainly expecting and we were expecting it to really hit kind of in the second quarter, right? That the normalization would happen in the second quarter. And you know, if you look at earnings reports in Q3, still really, really strong in Q4, you know, you mentioned the MBA index starting to come down and that's mainly on, you know, kind of refinances, but still a 140, 10 year, you know, when we hit 160, I was thinking, you know, about a month ago, I was thinking, okay, well, here we go, right? This is, this is the rise that everybody's talking about and we're anticipating and, and the forecasts are showing that, you know, by the end of, of 2022, you know, will be just right under, you know, kind of 4%. But again, when you look at historic norms, you know, a 3% 30-year fixed rate uh, mortgage is still really cheap money. And so I think what you're going to see 
And the forecast that we're looking at is as you go into 2022, that refinance is going to taper off a little bit, just given we do expect rates to rise. But you'll see purchase. Actually, when you look at the forecast from the NBA or Fannie or Freddie or even what we're forecasting you know, at Wells Fargo, we, we're looking at that um, purchase market to be at par or even a little bit stronger with what we've seen here in 2021. It's the refinance market that's going to come down pretty substantially to actually be in the 2.5 to 3.1 trillion if you look at, you know, kind of all the experts where their range is. And so while the market will be certainly smaller than what we've seen over the last two years, we think it's still going to be robust. And especially in the purchase market where Wells Fargo, that's a strength for us. And Christy, we had forbearance come into place and Kara and I both had it in loans that are guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie and HUD in our portfolios, but it turned out to be nothing on the on the commercial side. On the single family side, uh, millions of loans went into forbearance and have now are starting to work their way out of it. It's my assumption that that has not caused any real issues. What's your what's your outlook as forbearance kind of burns off, if you will, as it relates to the credit quality in the single family market? I think it's still going to be incredibly strong. Uh, it's funny that you use the million dollar mark. I mean, at Wells Fargo, we helped over a million customers go into forbearance. And with the expiration of that uh, CARES Act forbearance coming in September was the first month that that expired. You know, we've been in touch with the majority of those customers, high 90% that we've already been in touch with, and we've transitioned them successfully into new loss mitigation tools. Or one of the things that was characteristic of this market, which was really fascinating, is how many customers asked for forbearance, but never availed themselves of it, actually stayed current on the mortgage. They wanted it as the protection in the event something happened. Um, And in some ways, that was the beautiful thing about CARES Act forbearance, right? How quickly kind of the government intervened to say this is unprecedented. And so we're going to take unprecedented action and provide people with support. And we had a number of, of customers who took it and then never availed themselves on it. Or now that the expiration has happened, very quickly brought themselves current, which said to me, they may have had money in the stock market and have taken advantage of that and were able to bring themselves current. So we've actually seen really great success as we're transitioning customers off. And that's been the same thing that the MBA has been reporting as customers are very quickly coming out of forbearance. And I think when you look at the credit quality, I mean, go back the last couple of years, again, the credit quality has been extraordinary on every dimension. And I think we'll continue to to see that as as we go forward. Kara, as the purchase market on the single family side continues to be very robust and we've seen incredible price appreciation, that stock of existing inventory on single family has sort of inflated up in price, which has kept many renters being renters. Wells is obviously a massive participant in the multifamily lending market. As you think about where you'll be putting dollars in 2022, can you just talk through the various commercial asset classes and where you're saying love putting dollars to multi and others, but kind of shying away from other asset classes? Well, I'd love to say that I get to decide where we put dollars. Like I'm an investor. Unfortunately, you know, as a bank, we're here to serve our clients. And so we we really have to follow our clients and into the sectors that they want to be in and support them where they want to go. 
Um, so having- just on that, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So do you, I mean, let's just say that you looked at it and you said, I would like to, let's say you've got X billions to put out in 2022. Can Do you have any ability to sit there and say, I'm going long multi and I'm shorting something else in the sense of aggregate dollars? Or do you sit there and basically say, look, XYZ, it underwrites well, we've got a great sponsor. We're going to do that, even though directionally we might not like that asset class. Yeah, it's it's really a combination, Willie. So we, you know, you're talking about really a top-down portfolio management approach, which right. is something that I'm I'm actually relatively new in the role. I've been in the seat for two years now. Got into the seat uh, one month before the pandemic, and so it is something that I've brought to the commercial real estate platform. More of a top-down approach to portfolio management. We're also very bottoms up, and we are also very focused on following our customers and supporting our, our clients. So uh, there isn't an asset class that we wouldn't lend on right now, you right. know, maybe with the exception of, of a B or C mall, something like that. But beyond that, I will you know, we're not redlining retail or office or hospitality, but that does mean, you know, we're looking at overall exposures and we manage those exposures. So I can tell you, you know, we're consciously trying to increase our exposure to multifamily or to industrial or to some of the off-the-run asset classes, the alternatives asset classes. And, you know, we've, we actively de-risked our retail portfolio over the, you know, three or four years leading into the pandemic. So we took that exposure down pretty materially in the, in the years leading up to the pandemic because we had a negative view of retail. That doesn't mean we weren't lending in retail or supporting our clients. We were, but we're obviously, you know, obviously a little bit more selective. And when we are leaning into sectors that we're cautious on, we want to make sure we're seeing, you know, a tremendous amount of cash equity, that it's the, you know, the right property in the right location with the right sponsor. Does that alternatives bucket that you just talked about, whether it be medical office, student housing, I don't know, vertical greenhouses, data centers, life sciences. We just did a vertical greenhouse. And I was like, well, that's a a first, but it might be where the world's going. Does does it concern you at all, Kara, that because the major food groups are priced, either overpriced or priced to perfection, that capital is going into these emerging asset classes where operating histories and and, and, and if you will, performance isn't as clear as in the traditional food groups? It's a great question. The truth is, is it doesn't, and I'll, I'll try to explain why. I think that these off-the-run sectors have becoming a larger part of the market for years, and a lot of these property types have been around for decades and have performed really well and have tremendous fundamentals behind them. But many of the real estate investors out there are underweight, these sectors, So when they look at themselves relative to their peers or to their benchmarks, they're underweight. And so that's going to hurt their performance in in any given year. I also think that these sectors provide tremendous diversification. And that's in particular why I'm interested in these sectors. And this is something that we've been very consciously trying to increase our exposure over time to some of these sectors that we're watching secular trends, we're watching demographic trends, and, and we're looking at where the puck is going, if you will, and I'm wanting to make sure that we're appropriately positioned. So I'm not really concerned. I think there's been underinvestment by certain investors, and they're playing catch up right now. And I think it's less about the core property types being frothy or overpriced 
and more about the fact that they're looking for diversification and they're looking for, you know, maybe they're overweight, some of those core sectors, they need to rebalance their portfolio a little bit. You know, it's, it is hard to compete. I'm not obviously in, in multi and industrial. It is hard to compete. So, so it is nice to, to look outside those asset classes sometimes. Christy, we were just talking about the stock of single family inflating up in value and making it very strong for the multi-sector. One of those specialty products has been built for rent and single family rental. What we've seen is a lot of big institutional investors, and I'm certain that Kara's also seen it, where rather than going in, going for sale on a community that they've just built, because there's so much demand for yield in the institutional markets that they can go and sell a BFR community for a much higher price on a group basis, if you will, or on a pool basis than individual homes. Does that concern you at all as it relates to the supply of new inventory on the single family side? Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, I think of Um, affordability and supply is one of the key issues uh, that is happening in the market. And we we even talked about the positive economic trends and the supply and demand issue that we have seen in this last market has really driven home prices up pretty significantly, which uh, is certainly impacting uh, both supply as well as affordability. And so I think it's one of the big challenges of the housing sector today and is something that is especially pronounced in minority communities. And so I think when we think about, you know, how to address this challenge, it's important that we recognize the fact that there's a number of barriers that we, you know, have to navigate to be able to to work on this. And, And clearly they're pretty systemic in nature. You know, right before I got on this call, I actually participated in the MBA had the Consumer Affairs Advisory Council meeting, and we were joined by um, Erica Pothig, who is the Special Assistant of Housing and Urban Policy. And it was just really interesting, you know, her perspective in terms of, you know, what's the White House, you know, kind of doing on that to really be able to address some of these issues. And and I really think it's going to, you know, kind of take the proverbial village, if you will, uh, to really be able to to focus on this. You know, it's going to take certainly lenders to engage in it's going to take the White House to really start to focus on what are some of the you know policy decisions that have gotten us to this place and then you know what are the real solutions that you can move forward on that I think is going to really be able to engage anyone. But there's a couple of you know facts in that that are that are just pretty stunning to me. I mean the one, you know, when you think about the black home ownership rate being some 30 points below the white home ownership rate, which is the largest gap that we've had since when segregation was actually legal, right? There's some real barriers to home ownership there and certainly, you know, kind of affordability and access that I think are exacerbating some of these broader financial inequities um, that are making it more difficult for, you know, minority families to be able to, to build wealth. And so, to the extent that we address this issue or don't address this issue, you know, I think it continues to create some real systemic issues for our nation. And I have a unique vantage point, right, being, you said it in my bio, but the head of home lending at Wells Fargo, being the chair of the Mortgage Bankers Association, and then, you know, leading the affordable housing working group for the OCC and their project reach. And I get to see the industry from a really unique vantage point from all three of those positions. And I got to tell you, I have never seen such alignment 
in the industry and such alignment with people trying to understand this issue, but then really concentrated on putting real action into place to address some of these systemic barriers. And so I think that's the good news is that everybody's focused on it in a very concentrated way. And I'm actually seeing some real momentum in it. But I think, you know, laying the, I mean, it took us decades to get here and some of these issues uh, have taken that long. I think to really be able to ensure that the momentum is sustainable and actually translating this energy into real change, that's kind of the, the work that I think needs to go forward in the infrastructure, the policies that need to be put in place to, to really be able to allow us to be able to address it in a more systemic way. You, you mentioned that you sit in a very unique seat, given the various roles that you play. And if there's one magic wand, if there's one solution, we, we're in a market, as we've all discussed, that has tons of liquidity right now. And clearly, access to capital is a big piece of it. And FHFA is working on that. And lenders like Wells Fargo are working on that. And you're working on that with the Mortgage Bankers Association. But it doesn't feel like it's a capital-deprived market. It feels like it's a supply deprived market. Yet I think, and I see Kara nodding her head on this, if all of a sudden single family housing starts went from 800,000 to a million to getting closer to 2 million, I think a lot of us would sort of say, uh-oh, here we go again with the single family housing crisis of the of the of the mid 2000s. We got to be careful there. What's the way to create supply that meets this affordable housing crisis without getting ourselves over our skis that we have another single family crisis. Yeah, well, I definitely think continuing to, you know, lean into, uh, you know, housing starts. And, you know, it's interesting because I think it's economics and the foundational elements to me don't have me worried about that yet. I think some of the policy uh, decisions, though, that would need to be made in terms of ensuring that others have access, ensuring that we can invite people into this process in a more equitable way, and I think is going to be really critical. And so that's where I think whether you're using the housing policy fund, you know, that FHA is starting to look at, uh, whether you have special access programs that the administration can certainly drive. I think it is being intentional about what we do at the supply, who has access to that. And, you know, just like in New York City, right? And this is, this is you guys, your expertise, but being able to designate certain units as affordable units and protecting that so, so that it's more equitable for all. I think some of those policy decisions are going to be absolutely critical as we continue to explore What's the right way to be able to provide people access without overrunning or overheating the market? Carol Wells has been a huge lender on affordable housing. And quite honestly, I've been wildly envious of your affordable housing group and how significant they've been in helping both the construction of new affordable housing as well as the maintaining of existing buildings that have HAP contracts in place and, and, and assistance programs. What what more can be done from such an active participant like Wells Fargo in, in creating more affordable housing in America? Great question. I, well, first of all, thank you for pointing it out because it's it's a business that I am super proud of on our platform. And it's also a business that is incredibly sort of personal to me. You mentioned at the at the start of the webcast that I'm on the board of Breaking Ground, 
which is a nonprofit that affordable housing developer and it's, it's affordable housing and supportive housing for homeless. So it's very personal to me. I, I truly believe that every person deserves a home, whatever I can do, whether it's inside my career, or outside my career to, to help achieve that goal, I will do. Wells has a tremendous history, a long history of being a real leader in the affordable housing space. And we've got one of the largest geographic footprints We have a dedicated group, as you mentioned, it's called Community Lending and Investment, and it sits inside of commercial real estate. And I love it because it's, it is truly a mission-driven business, which is so different than all of the other businesses that I have oversight for in commercial real estate. You know, we don't just do low-income housing tax credit or LIHTC debt and equity. We do new markets tax credit debt and equity. We do community development financial institution loans, which which it's really patient capital for underserved communities. So we, we're changing neighborhoods that historically are not served by banks. We do all this amazing work, and I don't think there's any magic bullet, right? It's that each, each one of us has a responsibility, you know, in the industry to try to achieve these goals. And so we're going to continue to do our part. I think you, you see our commitment by the amount of capital we deploy year in and year out in this space. And, and I think the numbers for 21, and don't quote me on this, even though I know this is taped, I think we're going to deploy just in my team alone and the rental affordable housing space over $8 billion this year to finance over 28,000 units, which, you know, if everybody can sort of can sort of get on board and do their part. But it, but it doesn't just stop right with the financing, as you said. It's not really a financing shortage. It's, it's more of a supply shortage. So we have to think about how to incent developers, owners and operators of multifamily real estate to create and maintain affordable housing units. So that's the magic, the magic bullet, which, which I think gets fixed with policy and some of those, those types of things. But I do see it. I, I sit on a couple of boards like Christy does in and around this space and you know, if it were easy and and there were and there were a magic bullet, we we would have fixed the problem by now. Yeah, very much so. I hear you say eight billion, and that's absolutely fantastic. And we have a pretty sizable number ourselves. I was thinking as you said that that when you and I talk about eight billion, Christy goes, eight billion, come on, get I serious. Know. Like let's get some more volume. Here. Let's get some volume in our numbers here. What are, we, what are we talking about? Eight billion. I do that in a day. What are you talking about? Christy, just before we move off of affordable housing for a second, Sandra Thompson nominated by the White House yesterday to be the, the, the new permanent FHFA director. Clearly great news, at least from my perspective. Um, what do you think we as a community can expect as Sandra hopefully gets, nomin- uh, gets confirmed and gets into that seat as it, as it relates to any changes that FHFA might have over Fannie and Freddie, either on the single family side or on the multifamily side? Yeah, it's, I'm thrilled about that as well. I mean, I think it's Sandra, uh, well, this one nomination, if she gets confirmed, this will actually be the first kind of career person that would be nominated to and confirmed to lead the agency. And I just, I think she's dedicated, you know, kind of her life and career to public service. I think what we can expect, Willie, is more of the same. I mean, since she's been in the chair in such a short period of time, I think she has really refocused the GSEs on 
getting back to the basics, right? What, what, what goes to their core mission and what are they, what were they chartered to be able to do? And she's removed a lot of the noise. So some of the actions she put in place very, very quickly in terms of, you know, lifting the limits in terms of, you know, how much people could access into the cash window, the second home and investor limits that, that she, you know, kind of lifted the removal of the adverse market delivery fee. I mean, you know, there were just a number of things that she did very, very quickly to signal that she is here to be supportive of the market, to ensure that, you know, the GSEs continue to fulfill their role to provide affordability and sustainability in the market. And so I think we're going to see more of the same. She attended the Mortgage Bankers Conference uh, just in October. And so we got a chance to hear her talk a little bit about her platform. Affordable housing and increasing minority homeownership is very important to her and being able to look for ways to continue to do that. So, you know, the work that Freddie did around being able, or sorry, it was Fannie, Freddie's to follow, but to be able to include rental income into, you know, kind of the underwriting and have that count for those people that might have thin credit files. I mean, some of that creativity around how do we take long-term tried and true policies and think about them differently through the new consumer, through the new gig economy, and, and thinking differently about how do we give people access, I think is what you're going to see. But she underscores, and I think it's absolutely critical because this is what gets people kind of nervous about, are we just going back to what happened in the last crisis? She underscores sustainability. It doesn't do, I actually share Kara's view that, you know, everybody should have a home and everybody should want one. There shouldn't be any systemic barriers to people getting access to it. But when people get in them, we must make sure that they can sustain them. And I think that's a huge piece that we lost focus in in the last crisis that I think is going to be really critically important as we find solutions, as we roll out new products to how do we you know, expand home ownership. I think that sustainability piece is going to be key, and you're going to see that. The last thing I would offer is, I think some of the things that had been put on hold with Director Calabria, I think you're going to actually see her uh, really just encourage the GSEs to get back to this innovation and pilots and things that really do advance the industry. And I'm personally excited about that because I think if it wasn't for some of the appraisal innovations that the GSEs had done prior to the crisis, I don't know where we would have been for the last 19 months. And so having them be able to lean forward on what's that next phase, um, you know, what are the innovations that the industry needs to continue to move forward, I think she'll support that with some very strong focus over how do we define a pilot, who gets access to it, when will it then be available for the entire industry. I think she'll put some parameters in place that will allow us to continue to innovate but keep moving forward. So I hope they confer her quickly so we can get on about the business of what we're doing. When you talk about innovation, it makes me think back to when Fannie and Wells actually entered the SFR financing space very in a very innovative way and did that large securitization that ended up having the agencies back out of SFR. But that was that was back in a time when Fannie and Freddie could explore and try new things. And unfortunately, that one didn't quite work out, but it was due to Wells partnering with Fannie on that large single family securitization. Kara, as I think about Wells's ability to do you know single sponsor securitizations 
standard CMBS, balance sheet lending, agency lending. You have some uh, bridge lending, construction lending. I mean, there's, there, there is not another company. I mean, there, obviously, there are a couple other banks that have the breadth of the capabilities you all do, but not many. As you look forward to the capital markets and the fact that we have had relatively little volatility, which has made it so that kind of, if you will, all those executions have been kind of humming along. As you think about the future and where rates are going and volatility or not in the markets, a lot of people listening today who are sort of like, should I be thinking about a CMBS loan? Should I be thinking about a single sponsor securitization? Should I go back and go get another agency loan if it's a if it's a multifamily property? Is the window open to do a construction loan on a suburban office building? Talk a little bit about a little bit in the executions that you have right now and what you're looking at as a real opportunity for you to deploy capital in 2022. Well, thank you for the advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I, I compete against it every day, so I know it pretty darn well. The truth is, is that it, any and all of those things are available. And it really is up to the specific sponsor or borrower in terms of what they want. There are pros and cons to each one of those things, right? You can term out real, you know, 10-year fixed rate debt in the CMBS market, but you lose flexibility relative to a balance sheet loan. Obviously, the GSEs have been pro- prolific lenders in the multifamily space, but they actually started to see some real competition this year from non-bank lenders, from, from CMBS. So these are all very real competitors in the space. And one thing I'd like to highlight, I just thought about, I mean, that's all of that availability of capital and all those different sources are partially why I'm bullish about the market because we're not overly dependent on one particular sector. So if you were to go back in time and look at the percentage of the market that CMBS made up in uh, pre-great financial crisis, it's not a surprise when liquidity dried up that, that we ended up with a massive recession. So I think just sort of across the board, we have all these different sources of capital and, and they're all there available and, and ready for you to take advantage of. So what I would say to, to people who are looking to borrow money is what are my options, right? Just don't show me what you do. Show me what, what else is out there. And what are the pros and cons of each one of those options? So that's what we try to do. And, you know, obviously we'll advise people based on their preferences. But, you know, I have seen a lot of people not wanting to term out because they think things are going to get better, right? And they want to be able to take advantage of that, that NOI growth over time. So they're, so they're staying short and, and, and floating rate. And so we've seen a tremendous amount of um, single asset, single borrower volume. That which has just dwarfed the conduit market in CMBS. So we're seeing a lot of trends that we haven't historically seen. And, and I don't really see those things changing anytime soon. I mean, you can look at Blackstone and the amount of investment capital that they have. They're raising in their non-traded REIT and, and, and other, and other uh, sponsors raising capital. And they have to put that money to work. And they need to do big deals and they need to do portfolio deals to be able to put that stuff that capital to work, and then they need to turn around and borrow. So that's going to fuel a lot of lending demand next year. And I think there's capacity in the market. Markets have been stable in, and, and throughout the course of the year. If there are hiccups, I think there'll be temporary hiccups. And, and then they'll, you know, in, in bond investors will see that as an opportunity to buy. One thing I actually do worry about is work capacity. 
I mean, if you talk to people and I talk to people all the time, people are having the best years of their careers. They're busier than they've ever been. You hear that all the time. And there's such a war on talent and a demand for talent, particularly in, in the sector that I sit in. I mean, it's everywhere. I don't want to say that it's just a Siri thing, but I do worry about people's ability to process all of the business that they have. You know, do they have enough people? Do they have enough talent? And that's, that's going to lead to, you know, technology and innovation that's, that's necessary for the future. Um, Kara, on that, just when you, when you mentioned Blackstone and the B-REIT and how much capital they've raised in the B-REIT, it made me think about the, the the dynamics of the market as it relates to Wells previously having had Eastill secured at Wells and now Eastill secured being out. And I'm just curious from a competitive landscape standpoint, without that brokerage arm at Wells, which as you and I both know, because we were we didn't have the brokerage arm at Walker and Dunlop until we got into it on the multifamily side. We sort of felt like we had one arm tied behind our back because the CBs and the JLLs of this world were using investment sales to feed deal flow back into the lending operation. How has it been since Eastill is out of the picture at Wells as it relates to going head to head with the big services firms that are bundling the investment sale with the lending? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And Eastill obviously was a was a broker and an investment bank that that sat inside of Wells Fargo. They didn't feed our platform though. They were very arm's length. And so it's different than, you know, the the CBRE or the JLL or or you know your your setup of of being able to say, hey, we've got this investment platform and we're and we and you have to use this for debt. We just we couldn't do that and we didn't do that. Um it would have been nice if we if we could and we did, but but you know, Eastill is a big debt broker, and they needed to they needed to obviously treat Wells Fargo like everyone else. Um, so there's not so so in a strange way, not having it almost felt a little bit harder to 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 win yeah. a deal from Eastill as, as it was part of our firm. It feels maybe a little bit like we're on level playing field now. In terms of what you were talking about and the competitive advantages, I mean, certainly we experience this in our multifamily space, and we hear people all the time say, "Hey." I have to do this loan with these guys over here because because of their investment sales business. And so, you know, my response is that's great. I get it. But when you need construction capital, are they going to be there for you? So each firm has to think about what their own competitive advantages are, right? It's a it's a very tight multifamily market. We're all competing for the same product. And we have to think about what is our competitive advantage and what do we deliver? So what I always say is Wells Fargo has the full suite of products and and we do quite a bit of construction lending. And so that's what we have to capitalize on to compete with not having an investment sales, you know, brokerage division. Christy, I want to come to you on a, on a competitive issue in two seconds. So I'm going to ask you about Rocket and the presence of the of Rocket versus Wells Fargo. But before I go to that, Kara mentioned construction lending. Are you are you actively lending on construction loans across asset classes? You said that you weren't, if you will, you know, redlining or staying out of anything. But if I, other than maybe I want to go build, you know, the next mall of the Americas, other than that, are you are you pretty active across all asset classes in construction lending or are you shying away from hospitality and office right now? And really it's mostly industrial and multi. Yeah, I mean, to, to be frank, we're not seeing a lot of demand for the yeah. sectors that you would imagine we're not seeing a lot of demand for. So we're not seeing a lot of demand in hospitality or retail or office. 
we're not seeing spec office. And where we are active in construction, you know, it's in the office space, for example, it's more likely a built a built to suit product. And that doesn't mean we haven't done, you know, any spec construction office. We, we actually, in the middle of the pandemic, closed on one Madison for SL Green, and we're seeing tremendous leasing activity there already. So, like I said, we're not not redlining anything in particular, but I think you wouldn't be surprised to hear where we're being particularly cautious and where we might be leaning in. So, Christy, I, mean, I, I want to stay on this kind of competitive and the competitive dynamic of the marketplace, because I think it's fascinating given the breadth of Wells Fargo and the brand that you all have. We've obviously watched Rocket go from you know Quicken Loans into the rocket that it is and being, I believe, now the largest single-family mortgage originator. Clearly, given Wells's position in the market, you got a lot of alternatives, if you will. You've got such a great install base. You've got such an incredible brand. How do you compete with that landscape of a technologically enabled, what I would call upstart, even though Quicken Loans and Market's been around for a long period of time, but they seem to have kind of come from nowhere a lot of opportunity there or more competitive threats than opportunity? Yeah, I think a lot of opportunity. I actually have the distinction when I was at Fannie Mae, I started covering then Quicken Loans in 2008 and they were not a direct deliverer to Fannie Mae. And I remember the first meeting with Bill Emerson, who was the CEO at the time. I was like, why aren't you direct delivering to us? That first year, we did $250 million together with them as a direct deliverer. So to watch them now be the number one lender in the country, I mean, they'll do some over $350 billion this year, potentially. It, personally, it is incredibly satisfying. I tell them, I helped create you. So I have a great respect for the leadership team over there. I love what Rocket's done to the market and especially coming through, you know, the pandemic. I mean, if it wasn't for them in 2016 launching Rocket and really jolting the industry like we got to lean into this whole digital capability, I don't know where the industry would be today. And so I give them a lot of credit for that. You know, as we're thinking about what we're doing at Wells, I still think a home is the single largest financial asset that many of us will ever purchase. And people don't want to do that, push a button and just do it, right? And from a regulatory standpoint, this is still an incredibly complex asset. And I think it needs a level of personal care uh, to, to manage through that. And so I think you'll absolutely, you know, in the strategy that we're focused on it, at Wells Fargo is absolutely leaning into more digital capability, but doing it in a way that one combines both people, which, you know, you you talk about competitive advantages, Kara talked about that earlier. You know, our distributed sales force is, I think, one of the great strengths of the Wells Fargo franchise. And so, uh, you know, their ability to be able to engage in the market, engage with the Wells Fargo customer, to help explain this incredibly difficult purchase. You take people and technology and combine those together to provide what we're calling this simple, predictable, and personal experience when, where, and how customers want it. And so I think that what's inherent in that strategy that we're focused on is how do we leverage the digital capability where it makes sense but more importantly, how do we take data? I mean, you know, Wells Fargo has over 
you know, 68 million customers that that we serve every day. Uh, many of those who we have bank account information and uh, investment information through our WIM portfolio. How do we utilize that information and be able to tell them we're your bank? We have all the information on you. I don't need to ask you for all of those documents. Can you just confirm that this is your information and that's the information you want me to make this decision on and be able to have speed to certainty and be able to provide them, you know, kind of the quick credit decision and be able to move forward. So I love what's in our toolkit and our ability to be able to know our customers and be able to serve that, but then also leveraging, you know, kind of cutting edge digital technology to make that experience easy. I mean, it's still sad to me that mortgage is still the most paper intensive kind of process of all of financial services. And I think there's a lot more that we could we could do on that. So I feel very good about the Wells Fargo value proposition and our ability to to serve our customers. And as I say to the Rocket guys all the time, like I look forward to meeting you in the arena. Kara, on a similar line, I was at a it was at a conference about a month ago and we had a presentation from a partner at Andreessen Horowitz who put up a slide. It was mostly, no, it was all financial services CEOs in the room. And they put up this slide about fintech. And I think they were trying to scare everyone in the room that fintech's going to take away all of our companies and put us all out of business. And the slide was that, you know, there's $500 billion of both public company and private company fintech companies today. They were trying to basically say, we're investing in all these companies they are going to go take away your businesses. And there were insurance execs and bank execs and especially finance execs in the room. And I kind of raised my hand and said, yeah, but you know, that's really an impressive slide and it's got PayPal and it's got all these other great fintech companies, but the market cap of Wells Fargo and JP Morgan combined is $700 billion. And that's just two. And you got the entire industry there at 500 billion, you got just two and they're $700 billion. So like, Help me understand how you this group of people is putting this group of people out of business. And they didn't really like my question. But I guess my question to you is this. Given the size and scale of Wells Fargo, how do you take technology and actually implement it? Because at a company like WD side, we can go grab technology and you know, not everyone says, yay, sign me up for it, but we can kind of push it into a workforce of 1200 people. Whereas given your size and scale, getting people to adopt technology, to use it, to be smarter, more insightful, more customer focused is a really difficult thing, I would imagine. So how, how do you be technologically innovative given your size and scale? Willie, everything's difficult, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. It's an imperative. So whether it's hard or not, you don't have the option. Every industry, every company, every business, you're either a disruptor or you're being disrupted. So you have to figure out which one you are. If you're not investing in technology and you're not thinking about ways that technology can, can make your business easier and make you know, the client experience easier and, and increase efficiency and all those things, then you're going backwards. So, of course, it's harder in, in, a, in a larger place. But the good news about technology is when other people around you are advancing, you, you know, you can catch up, like, exponentially. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to move from, like, the, the landline, the rotary phone all the way to the cell phone, right? Like, you, you can, I'm sorry, I mean, you don't have to go to the, to the cordless phone and then to the, to the brick phone it. and then to the cell phone. You can go right to the, you can, you can go from the landline to the smartphone, so for, I would say to all those people that haven't paid attention or haven't invested in technology, 
that you can catch up. And, you know, the fintechs are an important part of the arena, right? They're doing, you know, really incredible work and big banks like ours can capitalize on that work. So it's probably easier, like you said, Willie, for for, for your institution and the size of your institution to do that. But it doesn't mean that it can't be done. Sometimes it just takes longer. And so, you know, I think it's important to not just for the, the client experience, but also for the employee experience, right? We need to make our employees' lives easier, right? We need to get rid of the paper and the processing and the, you know, we need to do all of those things in order to keep our talent. So it's critical all around. We're making the investments and, and it's something that you'll see, you know, over time. Roll that response into back to the office and what you're thoughts are as it relates to bringing your team back into the office and what 2022 looks like as we have the Omicron variant spooling up. And every time we seem to get ready to say, all right, Ali Ali income free, everyone come back to the office. All of a sudden something else comes up and we're like, well, maybe we'll stay in this hybrid for a little bit longer. So what's your view on that, Kara? Well, even though you can't tell, I'm actually in the office right now. So this is this is a very nice conference room. This is not a normal conference room. So I picked the nicest conference room to do this from. But we're at we're at our Hudson Yards offices and and I've been coming into the office over the last few weeks, 5 days a week. We're starting to see more and more in terms of badge swipes and our official return to office is is slated for January across the company. Look, inertia is a hard thing to overcome right? When I talk to people in the commercial real estate industry, and many of our clients either never left or were back very, very quickly, right? Because they were incented to be, right? We're, we're commercial real estate, you know, they're commercial real estate owners and operators, and they want, they need to put their money where their mouth is and, and, and walk the walk. So um, it is harder the longer that you're out, but, you know, however long it takes across the board, I am a believer that the office you know, the the return to office comes back. And whether there's more flexibility or a hybrid approach initially, I think over time, we get back to where we were. And if you look around the rest of the world, that in parts of Asia, people are 100% in office. So, you know, I, I think technology and touchless technology and green buildings and clean air and safety and all those things are incredibly important. And, and obviously, we have to put the safety of our employees as, as a priority, but that's going to help companies that, you know, have prioritized space and amenities and, and those types of things. So th- this is going to take a while to, to play out, but, but I think we're going to get there. So Christy, Christy as, I don't know. I would love to hear if Christy yeah, has a different view. <laughs> what, what, I, what I want to hear from, from Christy, I mean, first of all, you got a lot of people on the, in the Wells Fargo home mortgage division and them all getting back to to work both in cities across the country as well as some of your big processing facilities in Iowa and other places. But I was actually going to ask you from the seat you sit in as as, as chairwoman of the Mortgage Bankers Association, are we going to have conventions in 2022? Or are you going to, I mean, that's a big piece of the P&L as it relates to the income from the Mortgage Bankers Association. You're going to be able to pull off your conventions? We are. I mean, we, you know, went back last, you know, kind of August. We had the first was like the regulatory conference or in September. And then we followed that up with the annual conference in San Diego. Uh, 3,500 people attended. And, you know, you had to show your vaccination card or 
proof of a negative test. And I got to tell you, Willie, it wasn't only because I was being installed as chair that it had such great energy. I think people were just so thankful to be back together again and back in person. I have never experienced energy like that at an MBA conference. And it was absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, I get to meet, I've been in this, you know, seat now 16 months. I met my team for the first time in person when we were there. And so I do think the MBA is planning to go back in conferences, obviously with Omicron popping up and different states having now new different requirements. We're watching that very closely. The CREF conference is actually our our next conference coming up here the second weekend in February back in San Diego. And so right now that is still planning to be in person and, you know, registrations are strong for the event. So to your audience, if you haven't registered yet for CREF, plug for the MBA, uh, we look forward to seeing you there. But but I do think, um, you know, I do think in person is really important for industry conferences like this and the networking. I mean, it, there's no substitute from being able to sit across the table from someone and, you know, kind of and have a beer and get deals done. I think that's actually how work has always gotten done. And I think it will continue to be. There's nothing that substitutes for that personal interaction. But I do believe, I have a little different view than Kara, I actually believe that this hybrid is the new way of the future. I think that we've been in it now 18, 19 months, and I actually think you will see people, people want that flexibility. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kara, about this war for talent. I think talent's going to dictate how they want to engage and how they want to operate. And if I have more capacity to do my work, kind of working from home and not having a three-hour commute like, you know, some people in Manhattan have. When you look at the round trip, if I can be more productive working from home and then going in or meeting with people when I need to, I think people want that flexibility. So, you know, I am a proponent of going back. I, I get my energy from people but I also recognize I'm, you see, I'm sitting at home today. So and I, you're, also, you're also in the single family lending market and work from homes really I good. Am. People well, want more space. They want new mortgages. You know, that's it's all exactly good. right. So keep doing it, right? Like buy a bigger house so that you can have a private office. You got it. I love it. The house, that's the, so. that's where we're it's all taking talking our own books. Let's <laughs> exactly. I love it. I, I didn't think we were to get down to talking their own books. I thought I had a unified Wells Fargo view here. But I'm, I thought I'm I did into, too, Christy. What the heck? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are we are out of time, and I am just super super thankful to the two of you. I I see both of you often at industry events and on boards, and it's a joy to see both of you in your roles, doing all the things that you're doing, representing this industry so well, and representing Wells Fargo so well. 